I live in the middle of a forest. My house is situated on a wooded lot. And it's every man's dream yard. You know why? I have very little grass to mow. I live on three acres, but 90% of my yard is a bed of pine straw. Right after we moved into the house, I noticed these little indentations all over the yard. At first, I didn't know what they were. I thought some rodent was burrowing into the pine straw. Finally, it dawned on me, these were tracks. Every morning, I would see these tracks. I knew that some big critters were hiding nearby, but I had never seen them. They had to be nocturnal. And then one night, I met them. They were out eating the crab apples off one of the trees in the front yard. Evidently, the suburban sprawl had forced them out into the open. A family of deer were migrating back and forth across my yard. But understand, I saw the deer tracks long before I saw the deer. You know, I live a mile as a crow flies from Highway 78. But before I saw the tracks in the pine straw, I would have never believed that a family of deer were using my yard as a crosswalk. But the tracks were definite proof deer leave tracks. You know, if I told you a unicorn lives in my backyard, or Bigfoot wanders around in the lower part of my property, or a herd of buffalo ride across my front yard from time to time, you'd think I was nuts. With no tracks, would you believe me? Of course not. Real animals leave tracks. Imaginary animals don't. And the same is true with faith. Real faith, legit faith, solid gold faith, genuine saving faith leaves behind tracks. It doesn't just exist in a person's imagination. Faith isn't the product of self-deception or wishful thinking, not real faith. You can see its tracks. And this is the theme of the book of James. Faith leaves tracks. In fact, faith leaves behind multiple tracks. Faith shows up in how we handle trials and money and temptation. Faith doesn't just stir up intentions. It provokes action. Faith affects how we treat folks less fortunate than us. Faith isn't like the co-worker on perpetual break. Faith actually works. Faith affects how you talk and what you say. Faith doesn't conform to your surroundings. It seeks wisdom from above. Rather than blend in with the world, faith stands up and stands out. Faith walks humbly and bows before God. It leaves behind knee prints. Faith lives today in light of eternity. Faith endures. Faith connects with other Christians. Faith prays. Faith confesses. Faith cares. Faith seeks to restore a fallen brother. In short, real faith shows up in real life. Faith leaves tracks. And if your faith isn't leaving tracks, there's an obvious explanation that you need to seriously consider. Perhaps your faith is a unicorn faith. It's a nice sentiment. It's wishful thinking. It's a series of assumptions that you've held on to in hopes that they're true. But the faith you claim to have doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. It's pretend faith. 
You see, the book of James was written to expose a unicorn faith. If your faith is real, you'll see tracks all over your life. This letter begins as a modern letter would end, with a signature. James. But which James? Think of all the famous Jameses in the world. Got a top ten list this morning. Love top ten lists. Here are the top ten most famous men named James. Number ten, King James. You're reading from his Bible this morning. Number nine, James Taylor. You got a friend. Number eight, James Bond. And in my mind, this is the real James Bond. All the others are just imposters. That's right. Number seven, James Dean. Number six, he's focusing on the family. James Dobson. Number five, James Earl Jones. Voice. Number four, the James gang. Number three, you know him, LeBron James. Number two, Jesse James, not the motorcycle guy, the real Jesse James, the outlaw Jesse James. And then number one, the number one most famous James, you know who it is? You know who it is? James Brown, there he is. No, 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 not really. Number one most famous James, Pastor James right there. But did, did you know there's actually two godfathers of soul? Look at this. There they are. There they are. Two godfathers of soul, Pastor James and James Brown. There you have it. You know, there are also quite a few people in the Bible named James. Two of the twelve apostles were called James, the son of Alphaeus and the son of Zebedee. The latter James was martyred by Herod in Acts chapter 12. But most Bible scholars believe the author of the book of James was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 13 verse 55 tells us that Mary had kids after Jesus. Four boys and at least two girls. And the oldest of these kids was named James. But this means that James had some initial doubts. During Jesus' earthly ministry, John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us that even his brothers did not believe in him. Now I'm sure that James looked up to his big brother, but imagine having to admit that your sibling is the son of God. I mean, there's an old maxim, familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus and James, they played together in the same sandbox. They were on the same little league team. They wrestled with each other out in the yard. Imagine growing up in Jesus' shadow. You think you had a hard time with your older brother? Every year, James had to listen to Mary scold him. James, why can't you behave like Jesus? James, your big brother makes straight A's. Why can't you? James, a C in conduct. Jesus always gets A pluses in conduct. Poor James had some big shoes to fill. And he might have grown resentful. You know, younger brothers often carry a chip on their shoulders. Just an inkling of pride would have kept James from conceding that Jesus was truly 
his true identity, that he was truly the Son of God, at least at first. James probably walked around singing, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. But anyway, of course we know what opened James's eyes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, he made several special appearances. And one of those special appearances was to his half-brother James. Jesus cared about his kid brother. And when James realized that Jesus had conquered death, it suddenly dawned on James why Jesus always had those A pluses in conduct. He was God. Instantly, James went from a doubting brother to a devoted believer. And James grew rapidly in his faith. In short order, he became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, it was James who took charge of that important church council. James became known as a man of extreme devotion. He lived a life of purity. In fact, he had a nickname in the early church. He was called James the Just. Eusebius, the early church historian, made the following statement about James. He used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. He was a man of prayer. In 62 AD, this James died a martyr's death. The story goes, the Jewish Sanhedrin took him to the highest point of the temple, without a parachute, by the way. They ordered James to recant his faith in Jesus before all the people. But rather than recant, James used the opportunity to boldly preach the gospel. The Jews got so angry, they pushed him off the temple. But when he survived the fall... They beat him to death with clubs as he knelt and as he prayed for their souls. Hey, when James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, there was some serious street cred behind those words. James's faith had left behind some deep tracks. Which leads to his self-introduction. He begins his letter, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, James is the blood brother of Jesus on his mother's side. If a family affiliation ever counted, this would be the time James could have flaunted his status. He could have called himself the beloved family member of his highness. He could have said, the Savior's closest sibling, the kid brother of God. How's that for a title? Instead, James calls himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than drop names and use connections and try to pull rank and parade under elevated titles, James is content to just be a servant. After spending his whole life in his big brother's shadow, this is James's chance to take advantage of the relationship. But not James. He says, I'm just a servant of Jesus. James knew like everyone else, he was saved by grace through faith. It was an honor enough just to be a love slave of Jesus, a bondservant of his Lord. James now worshipped and served the brother he once resented. And then he writes, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, he sends them greetings. On two occasions in the Old Testament, Israel was conquered by foreign empires. In 722 B.C., Assyria invaded the north. In 586, Babylon sacked the south. Both times, Jews were scattered across foreign lands. Some never returned home. 
little Jewish communities popped up all over the world. Now, as the gospel of Jesus begins to spread, it's reaching these communities, and the Jews are starting to believe. It's James who wants to write to them a letter of encouragement. You know, the fact that James's letter addresses exclusively the 12 tribes of Israel causes some Bible scholars to conclude that it was written prior to the gospel reaching the Gentiles. That means that James was written perhaps as early as 45 A.D., That would make James, the book of James, the first New Testament book actually penned. And James cuts right to the chase with this letter. He speaks to the felt need of his audience. For no matter where they lived, the first believers were strangers in a strange land. They were blazing a new trail. They were cutting a path where there was no path. This Christian way of life was sure to stand out and draw fire. You can bet the early Christians suffered heavy trials for their faith. And this is where James starts. Verse 2. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now notice this. He doesn't say, if you fall into various trials. He says, when you fall into various trials. Why? Because all Christians face trials. It's not if, it's only a matter of when. I wish I could tell you that being a Christian immunizes you from trials and hardships, but it doesn't. Jesus said it rains on the just and the unjust. And it's various trials that arise, not just one type from one source. You know, sometimes we're victimized by our own sin, our own mistakes. This is why we suffer. On occasion, we suffer unjustly. There are times when our suffering just seems random. Hardship comes for no good reason other than we live in a fallen world. And then there are times when we're persecuted for Jesus' sake. Hey, this is why you should always be focused on what the trial produces, not where the trial originates. Trials pop up from anywhere, but they always come with one purpose in mind. Don't fret over the source. Fixate on the purpose. And this is how James can tell us, this is why he can tell us, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because the purpose never changes. This is amazing. Count it all joy. One translation renders it, count yourselves supremely happy. Another translation, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Here's a third. The Phillips New Testament renders it, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Nothing but joy. Welcome trials as friends. Come on, James, you got to be kidding. What a strange command. Why would I be happy when faced with a trial or a difficulty? There's only one reason. Because it comes with a purpose. This leads to verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, trials are what tests our faith. Trials are like resistance training. When we're pushed past our limits, that's when our faith begins to grow. Notice it's not trials themselves that cause us to mature. Trials produce patience, and then it's patience that has its perfect work. You see, trials toughen up our faith. 
And then it's this more rugged faith that creates a grounded, well-rounded maturity. Here's our problem. Some of us are too soft spiritually. We're not tough enough. Our faith is flabby. We get bumped just a little and our faith crumbles. If life doesn't go our way, we want to pack it in. It's time to grow up. Toughen up. As James puts it, we need to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's the question this morning. How tough are you spiritually? You see, James identifies the toughness that God is after in our lives with this word patience. Trials produce patience. The Greek word is hupomone. It's a compound word. Hupo means under, and mone means to remain. Thus, hupomone means to remain under, to stick it out, to persevere, to endure. Trials build spiritual muscle. Under stress, if we remain there, faith tightens and toughens up. Boy, when the trial comes, you think your faith is about to snap. But the Lord controls the tension. Truckers who ship codfish from New England docks to markets across the country, they had a problem. In the beginning, they tried to ship frozen cod. But the freezing process robbed the fish of their savory flavor. The answer was to ship the fish alive in a tank of seawater. But even then, by the time the fish had been on the road for three, maybe four days, the codfish had not only lost their flavor, but they had had a, began to develop a mushy texture to them. That's when someone got real creative. You see, the cod's natural enemy is the catfish. Got, got a picture of a catfish. <laughs> the codfish's natural enemies is the catfish. So a couple of catfish would be placed in the tank with the cod. This meant that for the time that they were on the road, the catfish would chase the codfish all around the tank. So that when they reached market, the vigilance that it took to survive the catfish kept the cod as fresh and delicious as when it first came out of the sea. And this is what trials do to our faith. Hey, if God doesn't dump a couple of catfish in your tank from time to time, you'll lose your godly flavor. Your faith will become mushy. Faith grows only under pressure. God has to apply some resistance. The faith that grows further and lasts longer and holds on tighter and stretches beyond belongs to the believer who has stayed put in the hard spot. Have you stayed put in the hard spot? It's so easy to bolt. You see, Satan makes sure that every trial comes with an eject button that you can hit before God's purpose is complete. There's always a shortcut. There's an easy way. There's an out. But faith will not toughen up and strengthen up if you never stay under. Always remember, God never sharpens a knife on a stick of butter. The trial produces the friction that produces the resistance that sharpens our edge. Are you with me? You with me? Two frogs fell into a can of cream. Or so I heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. And that can, that cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croak number one? 
Tis fate, no helps around. Goodbye, my friend. Goodbye, sad world. And weeping still he drowned. But number two, made of sterner stuff, dog paddled in surprise. The while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he said, or so I heard he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog were dead. An hour or two he quick kicked and swam. Not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and kicked, then hopped out via butter. <laughs> hey, hey, this is why God allows trials. So it'll cultivate endurance. So you'll learn to press through hardships and overcome obstacles. So you'll learn how to turn cream into butter. You see, there'll be no resistance in heaven. No pushback in heaven. The time to build endurance, to grow a strong faith is now. God sends trials not to impair us, but to improve us. And this is how we need to learn to see our trials. For how we approach our trials is crucial. Do we resent it? Do we avoid it? Do we try to escape it? Or do we say, bring it on? Do we consider it nothing but joy? Do we welcome trials as a friend? Notice the first word in verse 3. It's the word know. James says that a Christian knows that God works through trials. And the Greek word implies an intuitive knowledge. In other words, a Christian knows in his gut. He just knows that there's something redeeming in trials, that God is going to use trials in his life for a higher good. Now, how does a Christian know this? What makes this an intuitive bit of information? Here's why. Every Christian has been to the cross. My first act of faith, your first act of faith, was to trust in Jesus' death as payment for our sin. Was it not? Well, at the cross of Christ, God worked a miracle. He took the world's worst tragedy and turned it into the world's supreme triumph. That's why every Christian knows that God works miracles through trials. You know, someone once said, every miracle in the Bible started out a problem. If God came to us with a plan to work a miracle, we would welcome Him, wouldn't we? We would count it all joy. But that's what He does when He sends us a trial. It's His way of starting a miracle. A trial is a miracle in embryonic form. Embrace it. Don't run. Provide a little resistance and God will turn your trial into a full-fledged miracle. Always remember, a great oak is just a little nut that held its ground. And even you can be a little nut. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. Now James keeps rapping, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, and when you're faced with various trials, what you really need most is wisdom. For here's the problem. Trials cause pain. And pain twists and warps our perspective. And a skewed perspective is going to hinder our faith. You see, it's wisdom that keeps our assumptions in check. It's wisdom that keeps us seeing clearly. God's wisdom prevents us from jumping to wrong conclusions. It's God's wisdom that strengthens faith. Recently, USA Today did a report on the dangers of peephole driving. 
peephole driving. This is a wintertime phenomenon, most common in the northern states, but here with our cold weather lately, it's getting popular down south. You wake up on a bitterly cold morning to find your car encased in ice. You crank your car, you turn on the defrost, and then you go outside with your little scraper, and you try to scrape the ice off the windshield. But it's cold, and it's hard work, and you're running late, you're in a hurry. And so after managing to clean off maybe the size of a medium pizza and then a little slit right on the driver's window, you know, where you can just look out, you jump into the car and take off. Now, though, you're driving with about 5% of your normal visibility. Your little head is up against the windshield, you know, looking around through that little peephole. It's dangerous. Trials, too, though, create the same effect. They create a layer of pain and coldness and confusion that that covers our perspective. We hurt. And when we hurt, no one likes to hurt. And so when we hurt, we want to move on as fast as we can. And so we scrape off just enough of the pain and the hurt so that we have a peephole. We're still driving now. We're still steering, but we're steering through this little peephole. Pain has distorted our perspective, and it's dangerous. This is when accidents happen. You're a hazard to yourself and to other people. Wisdom, on the other hand, takes the time to clear off all the ice. Wisdom insists on seeing God's truth. Wisdom tackles life with 100% visibility. And here's good news. Wisdom is available. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask God for wisdom, and he will pour it out upon you lavishly. You see, the opposite of wise is foolish. And there's no excuse for any of us to be a fool. I know you might not be the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree. But you don't have to be foolish. You don't have to appear in who's who to know what's what. Wisdom isn't the accumulation of facts. It's not book knowledge. It's street smarts. It's being able to see life practically. It's being able to look at life through God's lens and God's perspective. You see, a lack of education might get in the way of knowledge. But wisdom gets thwarted by a lack of humility. And a refusal to seek God and know God and love God. This is why when you ask for wisdom, James says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. That there are two paths in this life. Jesus described them in the Sermon on the Mount. There's the broad way and there's the narrow way. The broad way is your way. Do your own thing. Live as you please. Everybody else does it. The only problem is that it leads to destruction. The narrow way is God's way. You rely on His wisdom. You do life His way. It leads to life. But it's harder. And you know why? Because it goes against the grain. You meet resistance when you do it God's way. Thus, if you choose wisdom, you have got to be all in. There can be no doubting. James tells us, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea 
driven and tossed by the wind. The doubter, he's the guy who flip-flops. I'm in today, but tomorrow I'm backpedaling and I'm making concessions and I'm conceding little compromises. The doubter isn't firm in his faith. You see, a doubter, James says, is like a wave. A wave is controlled by the moon and the tides and the storms at sea. A wave doesn't have a mind of its own. It has no backbone to set its own rhythms. Verse 7 says, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The man who doubts, he doesn't receive God's blessing. He misses out. Doubt will take you out from under the spout of God's blessing. Did you get that? Doubt takes us out from under God's spout. Why don't you say that with me? You ready? Doubt takes us out from under God's spout. It's true. Doubt is the surest way to miss out on the good things God has for your life. Notice what's left behind in the wake of doubt. Nothing. The doubter receives nothing from God. He's like a wave that rolls in off the ocean, crashes into the shore, but then he vanishes. Doubt leaves behind nothing permanent. See, doubt doesn't leave tracks. Only faith leaves tracks. Only faith leaves behind evidence that it exists, that it was for real. James continues describing the doubter in verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The Greek phrase translated double-minded has a colorful definition. It means facing two directions. Facing two directions. In his classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan refers to the doubter as Mr. Facing Both Ways. Here's a guy who refuses to decide. He never makes up his mind. He's the classic fence straddler. On Monday, he's walking with God, but by Friday, he's been sucked back into the sinful pleasures. And in facing both ways, he's giving 100% to neither side. He's a man who's never been all in. And he makes for both an unhappy saint and a miserable sinner. Look at me this morning. Am I looking at Mr. Facing Both Ways? Have you decided to be all in with Jesus? I hope so. In verse 9, James continues to talk about wisdom. But as it relates now to wealth, he says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. Wisdom understands that money has nothing to do with a person's status. Neither a lot of it or a lack of it can dictate a man's happiness. No less an authority on money than the Wall Street Journal once printed, money is a universal provider of everything except happiness and a universal passport to everywhere but heaven. Now, that's valuable wisdom. You see, riches and money are nothing but tools. I've got a shovel in my garage that I use frequently. But I don't think about it all the time. I'm not always thinking about my shovel. I don't love my shovel. When my friends come over, I don't say, hey, let's go out in the garage. I want to show you my cool spade. When I need it, I'm thankful for it. But life isn't over if it breaks or if I lose it. And it should be the same with money. 
He says the lowly brother, the poor brother, he doesn't have much money. So he exalts in what he has, the blessings that he has in Christ. Oh, he lacks a 401k, but it doesn't diminish his worth. He's spiritually rich in Christ. Whereas a rich man, he has money. Which means he should be conscious of just how temporary and fragile wealth can be. It should humble him. John D. Rockefeller was the wealthiest American in history. When you adjust for inflation, he was richer in his day than Bill Gates is today. At his funeral, one of his guests thought out loud, I wonder how much the old man left behind. His accountant heard him and he answered, All of it. All of it. You don't take it with you. Money is very, very transitory. You know, wisdom is careful with life's price tags. Hope you know all of life has price tags. Everything in your life has a price tag on it. Life is like Walmart. Did you know this? Life is like Walmart. Everything in Walmart has a price tag. And the prices at Walmart are determined by Walmart. They don't haggle with you when you go into Walmart. You know, it's, it's whatever's on the price tag. Shoppers don't set the price. Walmart sets the price. Likewise, everything in your life has a price tag. But you need to be like Walmart and set your own prices. Don't let the culture or the neighbors set your prices. Right now, some of you got your car priced the same as your family. That's foolish. Some of you got your lake house and your jet ski priced higher than your church involvement. That's not good either. You see, wisdom will readjust life's price tags to please God. Verse 11 tells us, For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. <laughs> the other day I bought Kathy a dozen roses. Don't try to put any pressure on you guys, but I bought my wife a dozen roses. And, and I not only bought her a dozen roses, I, I put them in one of those large vases. Bought a vase too. Put a red bow in it, big bow. Got all that meadow growth. Ugh, weeds and stuff and... What do they call it? Baby's breath. Yeah, yeah, all that meadow growth is what I call it. And, and where it makes it look real full, you know, you have to 12 flowers, but it's all full. I brought that thing home. Paid $39.95. Thought, I, I thought it was highway robbery. As the old, the old song goes, the things you do for love. But here's what really killed me. I counted them. Ten days. Ten days was all it took. Kathy says, hey, bring that trash can over here. I'm taking out the trash. And she grabs those flowers up out of the, out of the thing. All wilted now, all rotted looking, terrible looking. She grabbed that $39.95, you know, right up out of the thing. And she threw it right in the trash can, right next to the used coffee grounds, right in the trash I tied it up, put it in a big trash can. Did you know this is your life? Your life expectancy 
It's just about like those wilted flowers. It's just about like those coffee grounds. You, you are here today and gone tomorrow. You're like a flower who blossoms up, looks all pretty for a time, but then wilts and deteriorates and gets thrown in the trash. Your life is like a puff of warm breath on a cold morning. Here today, gone tomorrow. Guys, this is why you need to start thinking about eternity. You do. Shakespeare once penned, Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers come to dust. And when you depart from this world, you're going to stand before God. And in that day, all the money in the world is not going to buy you a bit of His approval. You see, rather than resent the present trial you're battling, you need the wisdom to recognize God's purpose, that your trial is preparation for eternity. I love what Joe Bailey prayed, Lord, burn eternity into my eyeballs so that everything I see, I measure in light of eternity. This is what we need. It's called wisdom. We need to stop steering through the peephole. We need a broader perspective, an eternal perspective on trials and on wealth and on life. Trials come from various sources, but the point is always the same. God wants to toughen up our faith. He wants to produce in us endurance. Do you have a faith that's leaving tracks in your life? Begin today and over the next few months to examine your life. Do you see the hoof prints of faith in how you handle trials and deal with money and approach life itself? Make sure your faith is not a unicorn faith, one that doesn't really exist. Look for the tracks. Faith tracks don't lie. They point to real faith. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. And Lord, I pray that as we study the book of James, Lord, that You would hammer home these truths. That You would help us, Lord, to evaluate ourselves. Lord, we want a faith that's real, a faith that's gold, a faith that's genuine, a faith that we can rely on and count on. Lord, real faith leaves tracks. Help us, Lord, to look at our lives. And Lord, if, if there's some of us who, who don't see those tracks, well, we just get overwhelmed and swamped with a trial. When a trial comes, it just devastates us. There's no faith. Or, or maybe we've... We, we have no clue as to, as to money. We live for it. We, we love it. We, we, it's our God. It's what we serve. We're working all the time, accumulating it, being stingy. Lord, if, if, if there's no faith in how we handle our money, if there's no faith in how we live our lives, Lord, help us to admit the obvious, that ours is a pretend faith. And we need to go back to the drawing board. Father, I pray that you'll work in our hearts to challenge each of us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this morning and for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.